Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. So prior to coming to Pride, I had had uh, 10 years of recovery. I got sober originally in 2010. Um, when COVID happened, I was one of those individuals who was pretty much because of health reasons was isolated the first, you know, first six months. Um, as we know in recovery, isolation is a very bad, dark place. Um, as someone who needs not validation, but just support and presence, um, and then being by myself and the, what goes on in my head, uh, because I'm also bipolar, uh, I've had a relapse and it lasted for about six months. Um, I'm also, I was also a case manager at the time. And so working for intensive case management and, uh, I also have a license as a drug and alcohol counselor. So needless to say, my boss saw what was going on. Um, fortunately the week before I got called into his office, my doctor had told me about pride. So when the conversation started, I knew to immediately, the first sentence I said, well, I heard about this treatment place. It's in Minnesota. I want to go there. Boom. Um, two weeks later, I flew in. I got dropped off at that parking lot, the wrong parking lot. And I was there for 90 days. Uh, initially, it was supposed to be 30. But as a drug and alcohol counselor, I was telling my people, um, if you're going to stay, stay 60, because in 30, you're barely waking up. So as I got to the end of my 30, I made the decision to continue on and ended up there 90 days. And where were you coming from? I, uh, I came from Seattle, Washington. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, where it's green, but sad. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. It gets very gray up there. My best friend lives in Portland. So I, I frequent the uh, Pacific Northwest. It's, it's pretty, but it's definitely gets, gets its gloomy days. Yeah, it's not as rainy as most people would say, but it is definitely, for lack of a better term, moist or wet or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Was there a culture shock of leaving Seattle? Because now you live in Minneapolis, so I'm assuming you liked it. But what was the first couple of days in treatment like? Um, I think the first, so I'd never done inpatient. When I got original, when I originally got sober, um, it was outpatient. And uh, I had someone take me to my very first meeting uh, from there. Uh, this time around, going to inpatient, that was more of a, yes, it was a culture shock, but it was also, is, there's this thing about recovery the first time uh, that I always say I was really hungry. I really was done. Um, this time around, I knew I was in a bad place and I knew I needed a solution and what I had been doing obviously wasn't working as is common. And I knew that there was this opportunity. So, but <laughs> it's interesting. I moved here in October uh, after making the decision in the middle of treatment. And when they said it gets cold, mm, y'all weren't kidding. <laughs> but um, yeah, there was a little bit of culture shock just because I'd never done it before but I think I'm most grateful for the fact that I got to do it in an environment where it, you know, my individuality being LGBT, being part of the community, 
was so open that I didn't feel like a lot of people who are here were having to lie in their treatment because they couldn't be themselves. So having that freedom and doing things like nail polish and getting to know other people, you know, different learning about um, being non-binary. Like I learned that I was non-binary and genderqueer in the NPR at Pride. So that self-discovery, that missing piece of who I was, I don't think I could have found it anywhere else. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think to your point, Pride is a place for different groups to come together to kind of find a home. Because I think in society, you know, growing up, we're taught that we are different. And we know from a very early age that like, we aren't like everyone else. Um, And pairing that with substance use disorder makes it even harder. Um, So did your, was there a big push for you? Did you know you wanted to go to Pride because it was LGBTQ specific? So I heard about Pride through my doctor, who obviously doctors, you can't really lie to them, right? Um, And he gave me three options, but at the top of the list was Pride. And he said that he had sent patients there before and there was a high success rate. Then, you know, I had that conversation and I was glad that I had to come to a place, like I said, uh, but I'd heard through my doctor and it was serendipitous. And to kind of build on what you were saying, um, I think one of the things that we learn within our community specifically is that we learn to be professional liars from the word go. Because you know at a very young age, but you also know that if you say something, you know, you're looking at a ridicule, abuse, mental like trauma, So I think that being the first lie and then every lie after that, it kind of, we end up where we're at, you know? So if nothing else, Pride also provided me with the ability to be honest because it gave me that environment. Piggy, I'm curious to know if your experience as a drug and alcohol counselor uh, in your previous life played in uh, a role when you came to treatment to pride initially? Um, Did you find it was easier to like skate around any kind of, you know, rules or treatment plans or, you know, get, get away with things because you kind of knew the game or did you really just like immerse yourself and say, you know what, I'm going to do this work. So it's funny that you asked that question because that was kind of a conversation on my way in the door. I very clearly, as I was driving in that driveway in the cab, remember thinking to myself, I'm not a professional here. I'm a client. I'm leaving all of that right here in the driveway because that I'm, you know, having that education, having that life experience, obviously it wasn't enough to keep me sober. Right. And then on top of that, also knowing that I'm not there to argue I'm not there to impose or influence my own recovery based on my education. So I left that behind. I I did my best to clear my head and say, none of what I know is relevant because I needed to be receptive to the things that were going to help me this time around. Um, (laughs) There were instances, one in particular I can think of where I saw a counselor not intervene in a lot of, glorification and intensity and I became triggered and I ended up storming out of that. Well, let me not be dramatic. I ended up getting up and walking out of the room and I ran into, uh, cause I was so blown away that I was sitting over by the fountain and 
Joe Allen, who used to be there, uh, came walking by and we went for a walk and we had this conversation about that person not intervening. She she very clearly said, well, you're a drug and alcohol counselor. And I was like, yeah, but I checked that over here at the door. And she's like, yeah, but there's a part of your brain, a part of you as an individual, you're never going to be able to completely shut that. So you see a missed opportunity, you got upset, and here we are. And it was a really valid statement. But, you know, anytime I found myself trying to motivationally interview someone or try to, like, I could see myself case managing or trying to, I had to pull back because that wasn't my role. My role was to be a client and a patient and, you know, and to save my life with your support, you know? Yeah. And that had to have been hard when you were working as a LADC, because you're not the first person even on this podcast to have had that experience of working in the field and struggling with it yourself. And I can't imagine it being not hard or like extra lonely to be around some of the people who you're, you know, who have the same issues that you're struggling with internally. Yeah, it is. You know, it's funny because as a drug and alcohol counselor, I remember right the moment I relapsed that I, I remember thinking this is not going to play out well for you and you know it. And I was like, yeah, so boom, just did it anyway. Uh, thank you, bipolar. Um, uh, but yeah, you know, being isolated, having become so accustomed for 10 years to have people around me who knew what it was like to struggle, suffer, be in that kind of pain, what it meant when you said I wanted to numb or I didn't feel like I belonged and then to be stuck. And the only thing you have is the same kind of pain and suffering based on the loneliness that comes from not being surrounded. And I mean, people in recovery in the rooms, like I got sober in AA and then how we, you know, we started CMA and, you know, in AA, there's a lot of hugging and a lot of, you know, really embracing kind of a thing. And it's a little more, there's a lot more stronger boundary. I don't know how to describe it. It can be a little more Al-Anon. <laughs> I mean, not to be critical. Um but when you become accustomed to people giving you hugs and meeting you at the door and you know a hundred people's names and then we have the pandemic and no one calls you and no one wants to hug you because everyone's afraid, you know, there does become this belief or for me, there was a belief of what's wrong with me, which was the same thing I asked prior to getting sober. So, you know what I mean? It, it, it it definitely messed with my head and put me in a place where loneliness, you know, and my insanity took me right back out. You've mentioned your bipolar diagnosis a few times. I was wondering if you could expand on that and just kind of talk a little bit about um, how you manage being bipolar as a person in recovery. Absolutely. I think I, I mentioned it because it is, there are three things that I know that are true and never going to change. I'm a person living with HIV, I'm bipolar, and I'm an addict and alcoholic in recovery. Those things are as real as eating, sleeping, drinking, right? For me. Um, so it's important. I'm also, as somebody who is LADC, the piece that I always found or that I embrace, which I think we see normally is co-occurring disorders and poly um, use. 
uh, because people are, as we know, self-medicating. That was one of my cases, one of my situations prior to getting bipolar. I think it's important to point it out because I think that a lot of people suffer from that, you know, when they're going through active addiction, um, you know, especially people who use stimulants because it does tend to, you know, for some individuals, calm them down. It's kind of like when you give a five-year-old a type of Ritalin, right? It brings them into some level of coherence or what we feel might be coherence. Um, yeah. So, you know, I didn't get diagnosed till late in life, my bipolar disorder, and it was untreated uh, for many years because I was too busy trying to get that next bag of dough, do whatever I needed to do to, the last thing I was going to think to do was to take medication. Um, but you know, when you get in recovery, you get some clarity, right? You get, you start to put down a foundation you learn to be honest. You start to like take care. Like I started taking care of my HIV. I became undetectable. I started taking care of my bipolar. My mania disappeared. I started going to meetings and having a sponsor and doing all those things and was able to put, you know, recess my addiction does it mean that I don't have cravings or that I don't do or go through the same things that anybody else who's coming in? No, absolutely not. I try to tell people it doesn't necessarily get better, but it gets different. And some days are easier than others. And some days are harder than the, than the rest. I love what you said at the beginning when you listed off, you know, having um, an HIV positive status, being an addict, um, having bipolar because, and I don't know where I heard this, but I'm fully convinced that this is the, um, this is the right motto, which is happiness in life begins when you make friends with your flaws, because really we can change parts of ourselves. We can become sober. We can distance ourselves from toxic relationships. We can do all of these things, but ultimately we will never be perfect and recognizing our weaknesses will allow us to grow. And being uncomfortable, that's the only way we do it. 100%. Um, you know, there was a uh, one of the last assignments I did right before discharge was you write a letter to your to that part of yourself, your addiction. And the letter that I wrote was, I mean, it was a letter, but it wasn't a goodbye letter. I can never say goodbye to my bipolar. And believe it or not, I actually have named my bipolar. My, my bipolar self is Damien. And what I tell people is that Damien's in a corner with a muzzle and a straitjacket. Um, for six months, it got loose and opened the door to Crystal. She returned. But, um, you know, when I had to write that letter, it was more of a, I love you. I know because I do. I love my mania. Can't help that. I'm bipolar. Um, <laughs> but you need to sit back down and shh, be quiet. And that was kind of that, you know, I embraced my flaws. I know I'm those things. I also know one thing that I want to share about bipolar. My, one of my sponsors said, bipolar is like alcoholism. It's a disease that lies to you and tells you you don't have a disease. So it's kind of like one of those things where you just really have to, like you said, embrace your flaws and embrace the truth. I'm assuming then your addict self, you named Crystal. <laughs> well, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's a girl. No, I love it. I love that a lot. Um, Pinky, what do you do uh, today to stay strong in your recovery? Well, one of the things that I did, not something I did, thought I'd do at the age of 52, is that I moved into clean and sober house, housing. 
So I'm surrounded by 13 other individuals who are, you know, going through the same thing, kind of like you mentioned, uh, having the same struggles, you know, the same pain. Um, a majority of them, you know, their drug of choice was also meth. And uh, so there's this understanding, this, you know, kind of a connection, uh, if you will. Um, I also, uh, a couple months ago, got a promotion at, at Aliveness. I worked for the Aliveness Project um, and became the recovery stabilization manager. So I uh, manage a team of recovery, uh, a team of two who go out and provide um, peer recovery support navigation uh, and collaboration. And so we connect with other agencies and provide resources. So someone leaves Pride, for example, I help them find the money to pay for their deposit into a clean and sober house or just housing in general, or help them try to fight for eviction not to happen. My other team like provide resources like where to apply for GA, MA, uh, or, you know, food stamps or where to go get free clothes, a free storage, you know, locker, a phone. So ha having the ability to do that kind of gives that, it reinforces that part of me, right? Like I get to be part of the solution and utilize my experience to kind of like up, uplift and empower. And that helps me stay sober because, you know, in the kind of recovery, I, I practice the 12 steps program. Um, and mind you, there's multiple ways to do recovery, as you guys know, because you do that. That's one of the things I loved about Pride. But the program I work for me is to be a service. And even though it's my job, it also is that piece that makes me and that makes me relatable. The people I work with aren't any less than me. If nothing else, they're a mirror. And I understand what it's like to be on that side. So having that helps reinforce where I'm at today. It sounds like you are um, one of, you know, a great member of the recovery community today. Uh, we're really happy to have you as an alumni of Pride. And thank you so much for being here today and chatting with us and being open about your story. Absolutely. 100%. It's my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, Pinky. And thank you, Aliveness Project. We love the work you all do and we love partnering with you. We do our best. I'd like to do more, but, you know, hey, we'll get there. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.